0: Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Circus is upon us, and this is amazing because right now we are getting to the end of the Torah itself, and the Torah starts to take on a different form. The way Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses is expressing himself, like begins to change as we get to the very end of the Torah. And as we know, there's a there's a yearly cycle where we go through the entirety of the Torah, culminating with Simcha's Torah, the holiday where we finish the Torah, and then we immediately start again, which is just a an incredibly wise Jewish ancient tradition, which is that, you know, never be in between. Like once you finish something, like start right over again. And there's dancing and there's joy and everything like that. And the Kutzker Rebbe says something really amazing. He says, what are we so happy about on Simcha's Torah? Now listen carefully. He says, because we're so happy because we've gotten to the end of the Torah and we realize that we haven't even begun it yet. Do you understand that? In other words... We've finished the Torah, quote-unquote finished the Torah, and we realized, wow, I haven't even scratched the surface of it. And so it's our joy at the, 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 just the infinity of the Torah itself that we're dancing over. So that's the Katskarebi. Now, the Parsha that we just read, which is the second to last Parsha of the Torah, all these last ones are, are really short, is called Hazinu. Which is in song form. And I, I want to talk about that a little bit because I think that it's I think that's really interesting what's going on. So if you are looking at English translations of Hazinu, that's the name of the Parsha, you'll you'll notice that it's incredibly dense. So it is a song, and the way it's written in the Torah is also significantly different than any other part of the Torah. It's in two columns as opposed to one just kinda one wide column. It's two separate pillars going down the, the parchment. And I'll get into why that's so meaningful in a moment. But but the the word choices that Moshe Rabbeinu is is using and, and let me just just backtrack one second just to tell you that the content of Hazinu is the entire history of the world from before creation to to the end of days, and, it, and it's short, okay? Now, unsurprisingly, if, if Moshe is, is summarizing all of history, basically, from before creation to after Mashiach, then it makes perfect sense that each word that he's using can be translated into English, for instance, A number of different ways, like a lot of different ways. That's why if you read an English translation of Hazinu, you're going to see very different texts. Now, it's worth noting at this point, something that you should just know in general, which is that every translation is a commentary. So what does that mean? Every translation out of Hebrew into another language is a commentary on the Torah itself. Well, that might sound perplexing at first, because you say, well, wait a second, the, the whole point of a commentary is that I get a one-to-one correspondence in my language of what the Hebrew is. So what do you mean it's a commentary? It's not a commentary, it's a translation. No, it's a commentary. Why? Because Hebrew is working, the Torah is working on multiple levels, which means that each word can be translated a number of different ways with different nuances. Now, when you get to a Parsha like Hazinu, that sort of like the ante on what I just described gets gets upped an entirely new level. In other words, now you've got just a huge number of words that can be used to translate the Hebrew word. Okay, so now let's get back to the point. Why is every translation a commentary? Because I, as a translator, can only pick one word when I'm publishing a book which means from the vastly different nuances and meanings that that word can have, I am going to choose one. Now, in doing so, I am investing my own personality on the text itself. Now, instead of it meaning five different things or 10 different things simultaneously, I am giving you one choice, and that decision is a commentary. Do you understand? So this is why it's so important to really try to learn it in the original. And if you can't, to try to get a really good annotated translation. And I would recommend The Living Torah by Ari Kaplan, Rabbi Ari Kaplan. That's, that's he will often give you the multiple different ways that a word can be translated. So let's get back to Hazinu. Hazinu, again, is a very short song. Moshe Rabbeinu himself calls it a song. And it's recapitulating the entire history of the world from before creation to after Mashiach. And it's using very dense, complicated language to discuss all the different imagery. And it's written in a way in the Torah that no other Parsha is written in these two long columns. All right, so now let's, let's start to put all these ideas together. How do you express the infinite in words? How do you sum up all of reality in words? How do you do it? So, you know, our our greatest, greatest people have faced this problem. And probably no one faced it more than Moshe, because no one had access to the entirety of truth. Well, not the entirety of truth, because the only one who completely knows God is God himself. Right? So if you know everything God knows, then you're also God. So, so even Moshe doesn't know absolutely everything, but at the same time, no one has ever known more than Moshe. The Rambam brings it down as just codified Jewish thought that Moshe is the greatest prophet ever. And even Mashiach will not be a greater prophet than Moshe Rabbeinu. Mashiach will be greater in other things, but not in prophecy. Moshe remains the greatest prophet ever. Okay, so let me try to articulate this dilemma of how do you communicate everything you know? Like how do you do it? How do you do it? And I'll give you two examples that just sort of kind of touch on this. One is from the Ari. So I heard in in the, in the name of the Ari that that or maybe it was one of his students. I don't know. That he had a thought one time that, were he com- were he to communicate it, would have taken seventy years. Seven. Up. You hear that? The Ari had a thought one time that, were he able to communicate it, it would have taken seventy years. And I was thinking about that. Like, how could that be? And here's just a visual, just to help us wrap our mind around it. Imagine several different mountains. Now imagine like just the mountain tops. And I think that in what the Ari, and this is just my own way of internalizing this thought, that the Ari had an idea to connect the tips of mountains of thought <laughs> And the interrelation between the mountaintops. But were he to communicate it, he would have had to have communicated each mountain worth of thought in order to communicate the top of the mountains and then to get to the thought, which is the interrelation of the tips of the mountaintops. So whether that's accurate or not, I don't know. But it's a way of visualizing how it could take 70 years to communicate a thought. Now I'll give you another example. Which is that Ribby Nachman of Breslov, toward the end of his life, said that his thoughts became, they were becoming so expansive that he wasn't able to communicate them anymore. And so that's why he started telling stories. And that in itself is, is an amazing thought. In other words, it should give us an additional appreciation of how powerful stories are that you can express so much information in a story. That is amazing. And if you think about it, the the Torah itself, especially, well, large sections of the Torah, but especially the beginning of the Torah, Sefer Bereshis, the book of Genesis, and even the beginning of the, the, the description of the creation of the world is all told in story form. And I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of one of the top Rebbe's that that God loves stories. God loves stories. And that you know when a person, a sign that a person has grown old, when they stop telling stories. Isn't that interesting. But imagine how much physics and biology and chemistry. Like, mountains and mountains and mountains of textbooks would have to be written to describe the actual creation of the universe, of Yeshmi right? That how something was created out of nothingness. And in the Torah, it's a few lines. <laughs> it's a few lines. Vreshiz Vara Elohim. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Wow. Like... What what would the math look like on that? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. One line. One line. So So now let's get to let's get back to Motion and Hazina. So what is the narrative of Hazina? So if you just kind of read it through, it's you know, the image the imagery is so wild. That it's hard to actually pluck out the actual storyline of it. And like I told you, it's from the before creation till after Mashiach. Moshe is communicating it. So he's found a, a mode of communication. Moshe, so to speak, is desperate to communicate. And so he's not speaking anymore, he's singing. That in itself is revelatory, right? Like somehow in song, you can communicate more with words. And if you think about that, that that sounds like sort of like intuitive and perhaps even obvious. But I don't know if you ever thought about it in that way before. That, That singing, because there's an emotionality in singing and a joy and an expansiveness in singing and in song, that can translate meaning, like on multiple levels, emotional, you know, just like, in a way that words can't. So, so A, just the fact that Moshe is singing is, is, is amazing to communicate this. And then remember, structurally, this song is written, the text, the way the words appear on the parchment itself, differently from any other place in the Torah. There are these long columns, and I'll tell you two long columns, and I'll just tell you an aside, and you can make of it what you like. But we know whatever's going on in the Torah is going on in the world. And I can tell you, because I lived through this, as most of you did, but I don't know if you ever made this connection. When the Twin Towers were destroyed, we were on Parsha's Hazina. In other words, there they were. There are the Twin Towers. There they are. Again, make of it what you like. I'm just telling you what happened. So, so what is the narrative? The narrative is as follows. God creates the world. God chooses the Jewish people. God showers the Jewish people with love and blessings. The Jewish people grow arrogant, thinking that all of the success that they're experiencing is the work of their own hands. The Jewish people then stray even further. Emboldened by their own delusions, they start to worship other gods. God then seeks to discipline them and to tell them that there is no hope other than me. And so the nations of the world are successful in their persecution and their attacks on the Jewish people. But then Here comes the next stage. The nations of the world think that their victory over the Jewish people is a victory that they themselves have earned, that it's a sign of their own greatness and their victory over God even. And then God turns his wrath on the nations of the world, and then Mashiach comes. That's it, folks. (laughs) There, There you go. There's a history of the world. From before creation till Mashiach, and that is the narrative of Hazina. Not amazing. So Moshe Rabbeinu is is giving over this this narrative in like, in this in this most dense way. You know, I've shared this piece of imagery with you before because it's just it it seems to come up quite a bit. I learned in high school that a teaspoon of a dwarf star weighs billions of pounds. Can you imagine how dense that must be? That a teaspoon weighs billions of pounds? So, you know, any letter of the Torah is like billions of pounds. But now when you get to Hazina, can you imagine the density of content that's contained in these two columns? The entire history of the world from before it was created till after Mashiach? Amazing, amazing, amazing. And again, form follows function. So the way it's written in the Torah is, is exceptional because the content itself is exceptional. And another way to kind of imagine this. So, so the Torah itself is a timeline of creation meaning to say it begins with the word brashis which is talking about you know the, the creation of the world itself and by the end we're talking about mashiach okay so it's it's tracking and people have even tried to make mathematical correlations between where we are up to in terms of getting to the end of the torah and where we are in the number of years on the calendar and one I can't say this over absolutely exactly, but but I'll just give you the the general idea here. They found that the year nineteen forty eight, which is the founding of the state of Israel, correlates with like Adam Arishon standing up in the Garden of Eden. Like it's this big turning point. So there there are very interesting correlations that can be done or where we are up to in the Torah and where we are in terms of our our journey toward the perfection of the world. It's 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 fascinating, but, but what I want to share with you is, a, is, is, an, is another piece of imagery. That is, as we get toward the end, it's like this tornado of, of, of hazino, this, this ecstatic sort of climax that's taking place in terms of the mode of expression that's going on, in terms of the Torah itself. And then what comes after hazino, The sabrochaz, right, just blessings. Blessings, 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 blessings. So it's just, it's so beautiful, just the way the Torah is starting to end. Now, with that in mind, I want to drill down and comment about something in Parshas Hazinu itself, in the text itself. I talked to you about the, the form of the text. But now I want to zero in on on the actual text. In the Torah, the scribal traditions are very, very important. And sometimes you have variations in the way the letters are written. And there are very, very deep ideas behind all these things. And one of these variations is sometimes you'll see a letter will be written in an enlarged format. Now, just tell you as an aside, because this is a rare piece of information. (laughs) I heard in the name of the Chasim sofer from Rabbi Moshe Wolfson, Shlita, that whenever you see a large letter in the Torah, it's four times the gematria, four times the numerical equivalent of what the letter would normally be. Just interesting fact to file away. And by the way, it works the other way too, that the other way would be one quarter when it's a small letter. And you have large letters in the Torah in isolated instances and small letters. Again, When whenever you see one, it's always very interesting. What is it trying to tell us? Now, there's a teaching in Gomorrah Menachos in the Talmud, which is that God created the world with the letters... Yud and He. Okay? That he created Olam the next world, the perfected world. And we're not talking about heaven right now. We're talking about the next world, the perfected realm. That was created with the letter Yud. All right? Now, Yud is the most spiritual of all the letters. If you take a line, a baseline, all of the letters touch the line of the olive base, all 27 letters, and including the five final letters, or they go below the line. There's only one letter in the entire alphabet, which floats above the line. And that's the letter Yud. It's the most spiritual letter. And not surprisingly, God's holiest name, the Yudke Vavke. It's the first letter of the Yudke Vavke. And there's zillions of Torahs about the holiness of the letter Yud. Okay. So, unsurprisingly, the next world, the perfected world, is created with the letter Yud. Interesting. Interesting. Now remember, when we talk about God is creating with the letters, each of the letters stands for a different energy wavelength. That, that's how to translate this ancient thought into modern language. And believe me, this is what the ancients had in mind when they were expressing it. They just didn't have the modern vocabulary to do so. But it's absolutely what they had in mind. And if you read the deeper texts and you read Kabbalistic thought, for instance, from hundreds or thousands of years ago, you'll see that this is absolutely what they were talking about. It's not even a question. So so the letter Yud is the next world. The letter Hey is this world. And just on a very simple level, although this is deep, but but just it's straightforward. The Talmud explains how is this world like the letter Hey? Well, I think you all know what the letter Hey looks like. And if you don't, you can Google it, Hebrew letter Hey. You know, it's, well, it's hard to describe it <laughs> in words. <laughs> if I told you it's a Dalet with a Yud, that, that wouldn't help because then I have to describe a dollar and a Yud, right? But anyway, there's an opening on the bottom. So it says, the, the Talmud says, that this world is like a pavilion and the wicked fall out of the bottom. That's the big opening on the bottom. The wicked fall down. They fall through the bottom. But now listen to this beautiful idea. But there's, if you can picture the letter hey in your mind, There's a little space on the other side, right? Like just above that yud, or or sometimes it's a vav, just above that vav, before you get to that little top of the hay. And the wicked who fall back down, they can re-enter through the top, through that space on the top. Very, very interesting so the world is created in a way where we have free choice and where we can make errors but where we can come back in where there's always a chance to return all of us have a chance to return as long as we're breathing there's hope as long as we're breathing as long as we're alive there's hope for our own souls And we have to have rachmanis. We have to have mercy on our own souls. You know, know a lot of us are so used to thinking, I want to do it, I don't want to do it. I can do it, I can't do it. This is a very superficial discussion. I have to do it. I have to do it because I have to have mercy on my own soul. A very different discussion that needs to take place when people consider these ideas. The Yitzhahara just wants to turn everything into a superficial conversation. You know what Reb Shlomo says? He says, in this day and age, it's a criminal offense to be superficial. Can you imagine? Okay. So... One of the themes of these talks is to show you how everything is worlds within worlds within worlds within worlds. And I'll give you an example that I just learned from the Piskei Sharam from Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver. Something so cool. So God created the world with the letters Yud and He. So now let's spell out the letter Yud and let's spell out the letter He. And let's keep in mind that the yud K vav right? The Yud and the He are just the first two letters of God's holiest name. But Yud and He is a divine name in and of itself. Okay, so what's the numerical equivalent of yud k vav So everybody knows it's 26. Okay, so now, now let's look at the letters Yud and He and spell them out. Amazing teaching. <laughs> so Yud is spelled Yud-Vav-dalad, which adds up to 20. Hay is spelled hay, olive, which adds up to six. Ah, yud and hay adds up to 26, which is the yud kebab Meaning to say that within the yud and the hay are all four letters of God's holiest name. Again, worlds within worlds within worlds within worlds. It's another stunning example of the perfection of Torah. You know, amazing, amazing. All right. So now with that as a background, I want to go back into Hazinu and show you something that I, I found and that I'm excited to share with you. Remember, I told you that sometimes you have a large letter and sometimes you have a small letter. Well, many Parshas don't have a large letter or a small letter. Okay. so if you find one, that's remarkable. If you find two in the same Parsha, that's especially interesting. What if I told you in Hazinu, there's one large one and one small one? Wow, that's pretty cool. Now, what if I were to tell you that the small one is the letter Yud that we've just been discussing and the large one is the letter He? Wow! Right as we're getting to the end of the Torah during this ecstatic, climactic finish of the Torah. Okay, we still have another Parsha of blessings. But we're really kind of getting into the the home stretch here. So what does that mean? That the letter Yud is small and the letter He is large. So I'm going to give you my interpretation. Now I want to give you a visual. And that visual is a tube of toothpaste. Okay? Now, you know how you have a tube of toothpaste and you're... As you start to go through it, you start to roll it up on the bottom. And as more and more of the toothpaste comes out, you roll it up more and more and more and more till it's all rolled up at the end and all the toothpaste is out. That's the Yud. That's the Yud. That's the heavenly light. The Yud is small because it's squeezing all of its light to where? The letter (laughs) he. The letter hay is this world. In other words, we're always reading this Parsha by Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot, Always. Every year. Because there's so much exalted heavenly light coming down into this world. That's why the hay is big. Do you understand? It's filled with heavenly light. And with that in mind, let's let's take it even another step. Now, up until very recently, during the Yisar Yemei Tshuva, the ten the ten days from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, there is this very seemingly innocuous change in the text of the Shmone Esrei. You know that's the headquarters of prayer in the in the prayer book. That's the the Amidah, the standing silent prayer. Well, when you take three steps backwards, instead of saying Oseh. Say Shalom bimromav. If you look carefully, there's a little emendation. When you take three steps backwards, you say say, ha Shalom bimromav. If you look in your prayer book, you'll see the letter Hey is added there. Why the letter Hey? So, based on what we're saying, I want to suggest the following. Hey stands for this world so now let's get let's talk a little shmona esrei nomics right (laughs) what is going on with these three steps forward that we take and these three when we enter the silent prayer and these three steps backwards that we take okay when we finish well everybody knows that there are four worlds. And again, I always want to caution you not to think of it as Earth and Mars and Jupiter and whatever. We're not talking about planets. We're not talking about worlds like that. What we're talking about is stratifications of divine light. So this world that we live in, and there are four of them, you know, getting to the highest heights of heaven. In this world, it's... It's called Olamasiyah, which means the world of action. Now that's, that's very important because, you know what? Good intentions, God bless you. God bless you. You got wonderful thoughts? Wonderful. But that's not what this world is about, and that's not the essence of Judaism. The essence is action. Action. Do something. Do something. Do something. This morning, I had the privilege of participating in someone putting on their tefillin for the first time. A boy getting bar mitzvah. it was a beautiful thing. And I gave a a little speech, (laughs) it's about 60 seconds, but it's a thought that I heard many, many years ago from Rabbi Riskin, and I'll share it with you now because it really kind of sums up Judaism and it sums up this world and it sums up the importance of the mitzvah. To fill in like a lot is going on in, in this short thought, okay? There's a section of the Torah where they talk about going out to war. And the Torah instructs us that before the army mobilizes, that a public announcement has to be made, which is that there's certain categories of people that, if they want to leave the army, they have permission to leave the army. All right. One one is a a person who's just planted a vineyard and hasn't had a chance to harvest yet. Okay. Another is someone who's gotten married and built a house and hasn't had a chance to live in it yet. And then another category is someone who has done something wrong, has done an avera, right? Something against the Torah. And the Torah is very... And, and the, what's the idea? That they're afraid that as they go into this time of war, which is a time of din, time of judgment, that this, this imperfection of their actions will be visited on them, and so they're too vulnerable. They can't risk their life like this. Okay, so the Torah is very open-ended. What, what is this wrongdoing that a person could have done that's so severe that they want to remove themselves from the army. So very surprisingly, the Talmudic pinpoints what that mistake is, that the person has done. You ready for this? They have made an interruption between putting on their arm tefillin and their head tefillin. Now, I think we could all probably come up with a lot more severe things than saying hello to someone or checking a text message between putting on our arm to fill in and our head to fill in. And yet, that's what the Talmud pinpoints. Now, I heard Rabbi Riskin explain it in the following way, and this is a window into Torah itself. Why is this considered so severe an infraction? Because your arm fill-in represents action and your head tefillin represents thought and there can be no interruption between thought and action. In other words, doesn't mean that you do whatever pops into your head, obviously not. But the idea is that the bridge from the mind or from the soul to the body, from thought to action has to be bound together. And that's the imagery of the tefillin itself, binding your body and your soul together so it's a coherent entity. Because this world in our lives is about execution and putting things into the world, making it a better place, perfecting this world, helping each other. The Lubavitcher Rebbe says something awesome. He says, when two Jews get together, a third Jew has to benefit. Isn't that awesome? Awesome, awesome, awesome teaching. You know how much is contained in that one teaching? The complete mission plan for life. Okay, so all of this is just to describe to you the fact that this world that we live in is called Olam Asiya. It's one of the four worlds that we're describing right now, and it's called the world of action. Now, there are three spiritual worlds above it, meaning to say three stratifications of light where the light just keeps on getting more expansive. Above this world is called Olam Yitzira, which is where the angels dwell. Alam that is called olam which is where the kise'a kavod, the throne of glory is. And then the top of the four worlds is silus, which is just pure light. And then there are dimensions above that as well. Okay? Within the oneness of God. So, isn't it interesting when you begin Shmona Esrei, remember you're in the first of the four worlds, isn't it interesting that you take three steps forward? are we communicating are we communicating you are climbing the spiritual realms that's what's going on when you take three steps forward you are climbing the spiritual realms till you get to the very top to its sealess you know i asked i've been wondering about this question And I asked the rabbi that I learned with. I said, if you had a rocket ship with an infinite amount of fuel, would that rocket ship arrive in heaven or not? Something to think about. You know, they say the Baal Shem Tov, when he would meditate, that he was so holy and so exalted and, and his divine knowledge was so awesome that his soul would a- be able to go all the way up into its to the top of the four worlds. And so maybe that's the answer to this question, but you can discuss it with people more knowledgeable than me, but perhaps physically, you would never break through the higher dimensions. Perhaps physically, the rocket ship would never leave Olam Asiyah. But where the soul can go is even higher, that the soul has entrance to those higher dimensions. And so at the end of Shmon you take three steps backwards. You, re- you return to this world. Now, isn't it interesting? Now, that, that let's let's keep all the visuals in mind. What did we say this time of year? The yud is small, and the hay is large. The yud is the next world. The hay is this world. We're squeezing all that light out of the yud, and it's making it's like a zero sum game. The hay, this world, is getting larger. It's getting filled with divine light. Now, as we take three steps backwards from the highest realms, back to this world, what do we say at this time during the year? oh say shalom <laughs> Do you see? Do you see how all that light is like enlarging this world? Oh say shalom There's the hey. There's the hey. You know, it was there before, but it was like, it was so little, we didn't even say it. Now it's getting big. Like the hey of Azinu. And then, just to finish the thought, and we do this all year round, we don't say the hey all year round, but the next part we do all year round. Did you ever wonder why, after you finish Shmona Esrei, you pray for the rebuilding of the Holy Temple? Like, probably no one ever asked themselves that question. Or if you did, you just thought, oh, Here's another opportunity to pray for the rebuilding of the holy temple. I guess they stuck it here. But based on what we're saying, I want to I want to explain it in the following way. After you return from the perfection of the higher realms, you go, "What? There's no holy temple?" <laughs> this year, this this realm isn't perfected yet. Oh, we got to get the holy temple rebuilt. So it's what we daven for immediately, immediately, the first thing, not a coincidence. Or maybe you can even add the following thought. I heard Reb Shlomo say one time, when the third holy temple, the third base of Migdash gets built, we're going to see that it was here the entire time. But we just didn't have the eyes to see it. We're going to realize the third base of Migdash was with us the entire time. We just didn't have the eyes to see it. And so we get to the higher realms. And so to speak, our soul has the knowledge that the third base of Migdash exists right in the higher realms. And then when we get back down, we go, what, it's not here yet. Gotta daven for it fast. So we're about to, Celebrate the holiday of Sukkot, and Rabbi Nachman makes a really important point. Sukkot is called the time of our happiness, Zman Simchasena, the time of our happiness. That's in the prayers. We, it's the official name of this period of the year. Why is it the time of our happiness? So you might think that I finished Yom Kippur, my sins have been forgiven, <clears throat> and now. I can be happy because my sins have been forgiven. Well, Rabbi Nachman says something else. He goes, it's the time of our happiness because not about what's about to happen, what we're arriving at, but rather what we're returning to. Meaning to say that a person in their purest state is a place of simcha. The soul in its purest state is a place of happiness. And why is it a time of joy? Because I'm returning to my truest self at this point. And you know, with that in mind, it gives you an extra appreciation of the joy of sitting in a sukkah. And everyone should absolutely try to go into a sukkah, and if you can go tonight, this is the number one night to be in a sukkah, you know, even if you have to just, I don't know, walk into somebody's sukkah. (laughs) Hi, can I just sit down? I promise you I'll leave immediately. Let me just sit down for a second. By the way, interestingly, there's no blessing on making a sukkah. You would think, when I put on the schach, the, you know, the, the, the adama, the, palm fronds or the bamboo mat or whatever it is that i put at the top i should make a blessing but you know why you don't because the mitzvah is to dwell in the sukkah now you have to make a sukkah to dwell in a sukkah but that's making the sukkah is not the mitzvah so whether you have one or you made one or not that's fine it's it's nice to make one if you can it's more convenient certainly but, but the, the essence is the eating and the sleeping inside, the living inside the sukkah. So let me just add this one last thought. You know, sometimes we think ignorance is bliss. You know what, don't tell me. Don't tell me, I don't want to know. But that's not really sustainable especially if you're thinking in terms of the very big picture and the life of our soul after it leaves the body, you want to know, and you want to know now. As someone once said to me, one of my favorite old time teachings, when we leave this world, we're going to have the answer to all of our questions, but we're not going to be able to do anything about it. Now we don't have the answers to all of our questions, but we can still do something about it. There's so many people who say, you know what, I'll do it when all my questions are answered. Can I, can I tell you what that is? It's major league foolishness. Major league foolishness. Because it's never going to happen. I heard Rabbi Tzvi Freeman say so remarkably one time. We were in a room together, and he pointed to the wall to a light fixture. He said, if you had a team of MIT scientists, and you told them, Tell me everything there is about that part of the wall and then come back to me. They'd never return. (laughs) We're never going to have every single answer to our questions, but we can still do something about it. And it's better to know the truth now. And so you know what the truth is? This world is a pretty vulnerable place. And when we when we go into the sukkah, we experience the vulnerability of this world and the vulnerability of our lives in this vulnerable world. And you know what the net result is? Simcha. That's something. Because we know what the truth is. We know that things are vulnerable. The winds can blow this way and that way. But once we appreciate the fact that that is the truth of where we live, we can rejoice and we can celebrate every single moment because we're alive, we're alive. And as long as there's life, there's hope. Okay. Thanks for listening.